Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 70. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 484. A short, little, but beautiful and powerful psalm, Psalm 70. Beloved saints, this is God's own word that he has chosen for us to hear and receive this morning. Let us give our full attention to it. I'll be reading it with the original name intended in this Hebrew, Yahweh, where your Bible might say, Lord, in all caps, and I'm sure you'll understand why in just a few minutes as we listen to the sermon. To the choir master of David for the memorial offering. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Yahweh, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them turn back, be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God, is great, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to help me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Yahweh, do not delay. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray that he would be pleased to meet us in it and speak to us through it this morning. Our gracious and merciful God, we know that you are great and greatly to be praised. When we long to know you, your attributes, your character, your works. And it is these that you have recorded for us in your word, that you have preserved through the ages, that each generation might come afresh and behold your grace, your love, and your power. And as we come to your word, we ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to behold its treasures. Allow us to gaze upon your beauty and splendor. Humble us. Encourage us and strengthen us in Jesus Christ, whom we meet in your word. Amen. You may be seated. I was recently uh, visiting someone at the hospital, and the story was sad, but all too familiar. I was visiting the parent, a parent whose son was lying unconscious, fighting for his life, the consequence of years of drug abuse. As we talked, it came out that the siblings hadn't visited yet. And one of the reasons was anger about bad decisions, abusing drugs, and hurting people in the process. But mom let me know another reason. The greater reason. The siblings always struggled with a bit of jealousy. Because the brother who was the most troubled, the brother who abused the drugs, got a lot more attention and care from mom and dad. And mom looked at me with sad eyes and said, it's because he needed our help so much more. 
And any parent knows what she's talking about. Parents want the best for their children, the absolute best, and and they want to protect them, and they they want to care for them, and they're willing to sacrifice their time and, and their energy and their resources, whatever it takes to help their children. And sometimes that means that they don't give as much time to the children who are doing well. John Calvin believed that that was simply just a reflection of our Heavenly Father. Almost 500 years ago, he said this. See if it sounds familiar. We must maintain as a fixed principle that the more unjustly our enemies afflict us and the more cruelly they wrong us, God is so much more disposed to give us help. The more we suffer, the more we're afflicted, the more trouble we're in, the more our Heavenly Father is disposed to run to our aid, to care for us, to rescue us. The more needy we are, the more God supplies our need. But of course, as smart a guy as he was, he didn't come up with that on his own. Doesn't the Bible say, when we are weak, he is strong? Isn't that just the consistent message throughout Scripture? That when we are in our greatest need, God supplies it the most. And really, that's the message of Psalm 70. It's a beautiful psalm. And if I could sum it up in one sentence, if I could drive home the point that I wish you would walk away with this afternoon, it's this. There is a comfort in being needy. There is a comfort in being needy because God helps the needy. Isn't that a beautiful idea? That's what Psalm 70 is about. Now, uh, if you scan ahead, which you probably shouldn't be doing, but if you did, I gave you permission, just a few chapters or a few psalms, really, you'll notice that at Psalm 73, right above it, it says, Book 3. Maybe you didn't know that, but, but the psalms are broken up into five smaller books. Psalms is really five books of psalms. And each has a particular theme. Uh, each has an introduction and a conclusion, a, a particular movement. And we're almost at the end of book two. Now, many over the years have seen a connection between the five books of the Psalms and the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, in that order. And they believe that the Psalms are sort of uh, they, they reflect and they complement the historical narratives of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy as a sort of poetic companion. These are the songs that you might sing to go with what you see going on in these books. And I think they're right. And that means our psalm is a fitting song that Israel might sing at the end of Exodus. So what's going on at the end of Exodus? Exodus ends with Israel having just finished building the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a huge tent that served as Israel's first temple. Before they were in the land, before they could build a permanent temple, they had a tent, a huge tent. It was God's house, his dwelling place. 
And it was beautifully portable, something that Israel could take with them because they built it at the foot of Mount Sinai as they prepared to really begin 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. For most of Exodus, that book, they're they're right there at Mount Sinai. And they don't know it yet, but the journey they're about to head on won't be a matter of days or weeks. Four decades they're going to be wandering through the wilderness. Between liberation, deliverance from slavery in Egypt, and inheritance, possession of the land that God is giving them, lies a long and arduous road and journey. They're going to pass through dangerous places. Food and water will be a constant uh, need. And that's not to mention the foreign nations that they're going to come across as they travel. Simply put, this is, this is not going to be an easy journey. And so it's good that they have the tabernacle. Because who lives in the tabernacle? God. He will go with them through the journey. And, and you might remember Moses pray, praying, if you're not going to go with us, don't send us. It's a fool's journey. And so as they set out, they don't do so alone. The God that that Moses met, met at the burning bush and declared his name to be Yahweh, I am. The God who, who delivered them from slavery after 400 years in slavery in Egypt and drowned Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. The, the God who, who fed them and quenched their thirst with water from the rock. This God, Yahweh, will go with them. In fact, that name Yahweh is really important as we read Psalm 70. If this psalm sounds familiar, there's a reason for that. The last five verses of Psalm 40 are almost identical. Psalm 70 and the last five verses of Psalm 40 are almost identical, word for word. The two biggest changes between the two occurrences are that the word that we have God in verses 1 and 4 in Psalm 40 are Yahweh, that that name I am. So why the change? If you're you're going to repeat the psalm word for word, why change God's name Yahweh to just the more generic God two times? Well, the Bible uses God's name Yahweh when it talks about his unique relationship with Israel, his love, his compassion, his care. When it wants to talk about his power, his justice, even his wrath or his rule over all the world, it uses the more generic God. Now, as Israel sets out, knowing that she will face many foreign threats, what does she need to remember? Not just that that God loves and cares for them, that he is Yahweh, but also that he is God of gods, ruler of all nations, And that no threat that they might meet is too great for him. And that's why this psalm is perfect for the end of Exodus, as they enter into the wilderness. It's a prayer of protection 
for God to protect his people from their enemies. And by using that broader, more general God instead of Yahweh, it's reminding them, and it's reminding us, that God's jurisdiction is not limited to any earthly boundaries. There is no border he can't cross. There is no door he can't kick down. And isn't that what we need to hear? Isn't that what we need to remember as we walk through our journey between deliverance, liberation, and inheritance in our heavenly rest? And that really brings us to the inscription at the top. I love reading the inscriptions at the top of the Psalms. I think it's so easy for us to just skip over those. It says, for the memorial offering. The psalm was to be sung with the memorial offerings. Those offerings are are commanded and explained in the book of Leviticus, but it's Exodus that teaches us the nature of a memorial. Uh, God says, the first time we really hear that language clearly is with the Passover. God says, the Passover will be my memorial throughout all your generations. And then it says this. He explains what that means. He says, And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service, this meal, this memorial. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of e- in Egypt the people of Israel and Egypt, when he struck down the Egyptians, but spared our houses. The Passover was observed each year to remind the people of what God had done for them in the past in order that they might have confidence of what he would do for them in the future. Because God's past deliverance is meant to give them comfort now and forever. To remind them of who he is. And so as Israel heads into the wilderness with unknown dangers ahead, God's triumph over the mighty Egyptian empire could give them confidence that no enemy was too great. Are you going to worry about some band of raiders and marauders that you might come across? Do you remember what he did to the Pharaoh and his army? And that helps us to understand the purpose of the memorial offering. Perhaps a better translation would be the memorial portion of the offering. See, several offerings that Israel would would perform each year in the temple or the tabernacle had what they called the memorial portion. This was the part that was cooked and, and then eaten or consumed. And it was meant to be to them a constant reminder that God had received their offering, that what that something had taken place when they came and offered that up to the Lord. And think about the implications of that for the sin offering that we we hear about in Leviticus 5. As they left the temple, having eaten a portion of the sin offering, it it would give them confidence that God had accepted their offering. They could leave the temple confident that their sins had been forgiven. 
That's our greatest enemy, isn't it? Sin. If we're honest with ourselves, the greatest threat we face isn't from Canaanites or some foreign army or a band of marauders wandering the countryside. Our greatest enemy, the greatest threat to our security, our future, and our peace is the sin that resides in each of our hearts. A person, an army, a gang, they can take your wealth, they can take your comfort, they can take your safety, but you are the only person in all of creation who can surrender your eternity. No one can reject God's offer of salvation but you. When you rebel against your Creator, you do what no earthly army, regardless of how powerful, can do to you. And it's just as true that no one can do what is necessary to take hold of salvation for you. The home you are born in cannot save you. Your parents cannot trust Jesus for you. Your spouse cannot repent for you. Your church cannot save you. Baptism cannot wash away your sins. Each person, individually, must come and repent and believe. Each person must own his or her sins and ask for forgiveness. That is the only way of salvation. That is the only road that can be walked. And it is a road that has been walked by millions And it is a road that has been rejected by millions because it is just too humbling. No one wants to plead guilty. No one wants to surrender all bargaining chips. No one likes receiving charity. It's just too humbling. But those who have done it know a secret. It is the most freeing thing they have ever done in all their lives. Only those who have had the burden taken from their shoulders know what it feels like to be lighter than air. Only those who have been washed knows what it's like to finally have their guilt and their shame taken from them. And only those who have yielded control to a gracious Savior, knows what it's like to have freedom. What took place on the altar was the most important thing in the life of the believer in Israel. It defined their whole existence. It answered the problems of their past and it gave them confidence for their future. That's the importance of the memorial option. It was something to help them remember what took place there when their sin was being dealt with. It was something to help them remember and not forget. 
Have you ever noticed how easy it is to forget? How something can seem so clear, so profound one moment, and yet so quickly start to become hazy or simply just fade. God knows. And so he gives us memorials. Memorials are are flags that God helps us plant so that we know what takes place on a particular time, on a particular day, so that we don't forget the important things. Touchstones that we can look at and it can jog our memory and say, I remember what happened then. That's what the Passover was. When Israel was, was feeling overwhelmed by their enemies, when they were scared about what lay ahead, when they felt outnumbered and outmanned, they could look at the Passover and they could remember that night, that night when, when God delivered them and they didn't even lift a finger. That night when, when God brought the most powerful kingdom in the world to its knees. That night when God changed their lives forever. The memorial portion of the offering was the same thing for the enemy of sin. As they left the temple, how easy would it be to forget what had taken place? To forget that their sins were forgiven. To to, to forget that their shame was covered. To start to believe that they they were dirty, that they were still in their sin. but they could remember that they ate at God's table. That God shared a meal with them to remind them that they were at peace with him. That their sins were indeed forgiven. They could say, but did we not eat that memorial portion so that that we might remember that all of God's promises are yes and amen. Forty years later, after wandering in that wilderness, as Israel prepared to enter the promised land, God wanted to remind them of a few truths. He knew that they'd be tempted to forget the lessons that they had learned in the wilderness. Specifically, there are three things that they would be tempted to believe. They'd be tempted to look at all their blessings that they had received and to think that they were the consequence of something that they had done. They'd be like Maria in The Sound of Music. I don't know what it is, but somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. I must deserve this. And so God gave Israel three warnings as they prepared to enter the promised land. He said, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. I didn't choose you because you were great in number, because you were powerful. I chose you because you were small and insignificant, because you were the smallest in the world's eyes. And then he said, 
Take care, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and your silver and your gold are multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and my might have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm the covenant he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. God's saying, I didn't choose you because you were strong, but because you were weak. You did not free yourselves. I freed you. I showed you mercy. I am the God who keeps his word. And then finally he gives this warning. He says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust your enemies out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. It's not because you were more in number. It's not because you were powerful. And it's not because you were good and morally righteous. I didn't choose you because you deserved it. I chose you in order to show mercy. (laughs) I know. It's humbling. We don't like being needy. We don't like needing others. We want to think of ourselves as capable and as competent. And so we don't like being told that we're receiving charity. But it's also wonderful. Because the reality is, we are needy. And it also means that there's a blessing in being needy. God saved Israel because they were needy, not because they were strong. That is the consistent message of the Bible. When we are weak, God is strong. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And David gets this. And so in verse 5, he boldly proclaims, I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. He actually roots his prayer and grounds it in his neediness. Lord, save me because I don't deserve it. That's how prayer works in God's ways. He knows that this is his only hope because God helps the needy. That's why this psalm is to be sung in conjunction with with offerings. The offerings were where God's people most clearly confessed their need. Think about what you're saying when you bring offerings for your sin in the temple. I am a sinner. I need forgiveness. I have hope in no other. And it's that confession that gives them hope because God helps the needy. The Bible teaches us to find comfort in being needy. The needy are the ones who get the Father's extra attention and care. There's no other place to find comfort. 
Isn't that why Jesus said he came into the world? Do you remember when he was confronted by the religious leaders about why he ate with sinners? Do you remember what he said? How he responded? Those who are well have no need of a physician, of a doctor, but those who are sick. Then he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I came for the needy. Now, he didn't stop there. He went on to offer up his own life as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. Because the reality is that as great as those offerings were that were offered in the temple for years and years and years, that they couldn't truly take away sin. They could only point to him who would. The value of an animal's life pales in comparison to one who is made in the image of God. They could never truly be accepted in the place of a human. They could only point to a better sacrifice to come. And so when Jesus was on the cross, as the better sacrifice, the true sin offering, his enemies walked about and they mocked him. And here's what they said, Aha! Sound familiar? You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it, save yourself and come down from the cross. Do you hear the echoes of Psalm 70 on the words of his, and the lips of his afflictors as he sits on the cross? Psalm 70, verse 3, let them turn back because of their shame, those who say, aha, aha. You see, Jesus came to fight our enemies for us. We are not alone in our battles. God is with us in Jesus Christ. What the tabernacle represented to Israel as they wandered the wilderness is most fully realized in Jesus who came into this world and endured great affliction to rescue the needy. And so everything in Psalm 70 is beautifully realized in Jesus who came, according to verse 1, to deliver us. Who, according to verse 2, paid the debt we owe so that our enemies may be stripped of all power over us so that those who would harm us might be put to shame. Or according to verse 3, he endured the mockery of the enemies in order to turn them away from us. He came, according to verse 5, to help the needy and the poor to deliver them. He came so that now all who seek him, according to verse 4, can rejoice and be glad in his salvation and say forevermore, God is great. And so that we might never forget this, God leaves us with a memorial portion. 
See, when God's people in the Old Testament brought bulls and goats and unleavened cakes to offer on the altar for their sin, it was easy for them to eat a portion of those offerings as a reminder of God's forgiveness. But what do you do when that sacrifice is Jesus Christ? And what do you do when when that sacrifice was offered 2,000 years ago and that he's now taken his body into heaven and it's no longer on this earth? Where's your memorial portion? Well, as always, God anticipated this. On Jesus' last night with his disciples, the night he was to be betrayed, before, the night before he was to be crucified, he shared a meal of bread and wine with his disciples. He told them that it represented his his body and his blood given up in death on the cross for them to free them from their sins. And when he gave them the bread, he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That word uh, that we have translated remembrance is the exact word in the Old Testament for the memorial portion. And it's the word that we find in the inscription at the top of Psalm 70, at the beginning. And so as we close today and prepare to head back out into the world, a hostile wilderness if ever there was one, what assurance do you have that God goes with you? That your sins are forgiven? That God hears and cares for you. What does He offer to you as your memorial portion? He gives you the Lord's Supper to remind you of your interest in the greatest sacrifice ever offered. That when God Himself came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, that He offered Himself up in our place to rescue the needy. So I'd like to invite Pastor Brian and the elders up as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are a needy people, but you know that. We thank you that you give your attention your love, and your salvation to the needy. Help us not to despise our neediness. Help us to embrace it, knowing that you rescue such as these. Help us to remember your grace and your deliverance and not to forget so that today and every day we can walk in the comfort of your grace. All of this we ask in the name of our Savior, our great sin offering, who endured mockery, ridicule, and shame in order to rescue us. Amen.